Welcome to the Trinity Galewood podcast. Here you'll find live messages recorded during our weekly services at Trinity. We are a community that desires to look, live, and love more like Jesus. We're located at 1701 North Narragansett in Chicago and meet every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Trinity Galewood podcast. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are God, that you continue to provide and protect, yet also, Lord, um, our God who comes into this world. And I pray that we would see that a little more clear today. I pray that we would find hope in that, that you are here and you cast away our shame and our guilt. It's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So today, uh, we are continuing in our series called Before Calvary, where we are looking at the stories of, uh, of God's plan and his salvation and how they are pointing us to a larger story of his plan and salvation. So once again, Shauna is up here uh, painting something that is reflecting what we're talking about. If you notice when you walked in, our piece of art is being uh, put together and we'll all come together next week on Easter Sunday. And so far we've talked about, uh, we've looked at a couple of stories before uh, the story of Jesus. We've looked at uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac and we learned that that story is about another father. is isn't just about Abraham passing a test, but another father, God the father, who, who gives his son to be our provider, the sacrifice that we ultimately need. And last week we talked about uh, how God is uh, the Passover lamb. You remember we shared this strange story in the book of Exodus that led to uh, God's people and their freedom, but that came with God the protector, the sacrificial lamb. And we learned that Jesus is that lamb, our protector from the wrath of God that we ultimately deserve. And each of these stories are pointing us to a bigger picture. They are pointing us to the larger plan and purpose of our God. And I don't know if you've heard this story before, um, but it's a story titled, Remember the Duck. It goes like this. Uh, There was a grandma, and she had a, a pet duck, which is strange, but it's her favorite pet duck, all right? Her favorite pet that she owns, and she has two grandchildren. And the grandchildren know that this is her prized pet. And one day, they were living in a rural area, and uh, the kids were outside, and the little boy was playing with a slingshot and was working on some control of the slingshot and accidentally flung a stone, and it hit the pet duck, killing grandma's favorite pet duck. And so he began to look around and say, oh my goodness, this is not a good thing. He goes inside, grabs a shovel, and starts to dig a big hole and buries that pet duck. The second he's done, he goes inside, he has a little bit of dirt all over him, and his sister sees what had happened, decides to take advantage of the situation. She says, I know what you did, I saw what happened, And so she has this plan that every time she has to clean her room, she says the statement to her brother, remember the duck. (laughs) 
And so the brother then has to clean her room, cleaning the bathroom, remember the duck. And it goes on and on and on. And see, what the story shows us and teaches us is that, that we hate guilt, right? We will do so much in our lives to avoid guilt. And we will go to great lengths in our own lives to try to not reveal our guilt. And it's true for each of us that that the reason that is is that we don't want to be defined by the bad that we have done. Instead, we would want to be defined by the good that we have done in our lives. Nobody desires to feel guilty. And, And with that, though, like sometimes our guilt... And the things that we do, the wrong that we have committed, can be uh, solved or healed by just a simple admission of guilt and forgiveness, right? Like, hey, uh, professor, sorry, I just want to let you know I cheated on that test. I'm feeling very guilty about it. Would you please forgive me? All right, fine. It's forgiven. Or like, you know what? I kind of... uh, told a little bit of a lie as to what was on my resume or some of my experience that I've done in the past. I'm really not that qualified for this. Can you please forgive me? Okay, fine. There can be forgiveness that's brought here. But in other circumstances, the things that we are guilty for or the stuff that ultimately leads us into shame is much more complicated than simply just coming up to somebody and saying, hey, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? See, when, when guilt turns into shame, it becomes a whole new thing for our lives. And shame, which comes from guilt first, is much deeper and more difficult to handle. I love this quote from a woman named Brene Brown. She says this, uh, shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt is, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. But shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Think about that. Guilt is just a simple little thing. Shame is deeply rooted in us. It becomes our identity and who we are. And shame can become one of these things where we start to say stuff like, what kind of person am I who could do something like that? Or or what if people actually found out that I did this? Today, I want to focus on this guilt that has moved into shame. Because I believe that God and the story that he's going to share with us today is pointing to something that is deeply rooted inside of all of us, which can be shame that comes from guilt. And to do that, uh, there's a story in the Old Testament before the time of Jesus uh, with a priest, a bunch of traditions, and two goats. Let me explain here today. Uh, This day was known in uh, Jewish tradition. It's still celebrated today. It's known as Yom Kippur. And in Yom Kippur, it is literally the day of atonement, the most important day for the Jewish people. 
this is the pinnacle moment for the Jewish people. And if you were with us last week, we read about how God's people were freed from this horrific place of slavery, and then they went into the wilderness. And while they were in the wilderness, God gives some instruction of how they're supposed to live, and even how they're supposed to deal with their guilt and shame. We read in the book of Leviticus, which is instruction, it says this, in Leviticus 16, verse 6, it says, Aaron is to offer, the bull for his, uh, to offer the bull for his own sin offering, to make atonement for himself and his household. Now, Aaron is the brother of Jesus. He's the high priest of God's people. And we read that to begin this day of atonement, he would have to offer a bull to God so that he would be clean himself. You may be saying that's kind of strange. What, 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 what does that even look like? Well, this is like a drawing of what this would have looked like back in the day. They would have been in the desert, a traveling people, and they were given instruction to set up this arrangement. You'll notice that there in the center is this cloud or this smoke that is coming from the Holy of Holies, the place where God had promised to be. And it was in that place that Aaron would offer they would, they would kill an animal and bring the blood of that animal into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed to go there. And then we read that God would give instruction for the people to gather outside of that area, in that region right there where the blue square is. And he gives some specific instruction. He says in verse 7, then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. We see that two goats are presented we see that one will be sacrificed and given to the Lord, and the other would be known as this scapegoat, one where the people would come and bring their shame, their guilt. And it's interesting because we see that this day wasn't like a day of great like celebration and jubilation. It wasn't like people are like, man, can't really wait for Yom Kippur. It's coming. It's going to be great. No, it was a day of reflection, a day of, of realizing the shame that they had in their lives, a day where people would come and place their guilt, their shame on this goat. And we read in verse 10 that the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. This is so fascinating. They would take a goat, they would wrap a, a red piece of cloth around its horns, and then they would escort it out into the wilderness. They would kick it out creating this distance between their shame and their guilt 
from the people. Tradition actually tells us that they would nominate a couple people who would like make sure the goat got out of here, <laughs> that it wouldn't return. And so it might take a little while of like really kicking the whole thing out, but it was, it was a moment in time of great symbolism, a great image of what God desires for his people to experience. There wouldn't be shame or guilt amongst his people. Now, if you're thinking, man, we should bring a goat to church. I wonder if Pastor Dave's got a goat guy. Like, I think you're kind of missing the point here. And by the way, if you're new to church, we don't do this anymore, okay? Just like, man, when is Yom Kippur? All right, it's not something that we do. Because there's something even more beautiful going on as to why Jesus would come into this world. Because what I recognize about my own shame and guilt is that it's really heavy. It's really deep. And while it would have been beautiful to have some goat and have this whole symbol and image and like we all cheer as the goat goes away, I recognize that there's something deep inside of me that is called shame and guilt. And in, in all honesty, our shame and our guilt reflects as to how we view ourselves and even how we look at other people as well. And because of that dynamic, because of the depth of our shame and guilt, God would go a step further to create distance from that and your identity. Let me explain. Last week, we talked about this verse in John chapter 1. Uh, when John the Baptist, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a profound statement by John the Baptist. He's known as the one who paves the path. He's the opening show for Jesus. He's the one who opens the eyes of the people to say, this guy is coming and he's gonna be a bigger deal than me. And he says he's come to take away the sin of the world. And I love this statement by John because it is so impactful for how we view life here today. In fact, the author of Hebrews would continue on this, pointing back to this moment of Yom Kippur. He, the author would write this. He said, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Don't skip that little line there. The author of Hebrews is saying, remember that tent in the wilderness? Through a greater and more perfect tent, he, being Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, that's why we don't got goats around here, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus came to show a greater way by his flesh, by his blood, 
by his presence, not through rituals of animals, but he also came securing an eternal redemption, securing the relationship. And what's so profound about this act of Jesus is that it flips the narrative. It's not this understanding of me coming to God with all of these things. Instead, first, God comes to me. And it's in that relationship that then I am, I have a different view of myself, my worth, my identity is not found in what I do, but found in him who comes for me. And I don't get caught up in the scam of the sister saying, remember the duck. I'm reminded of what God says about me. And I'll be honest. We need to fight against this. This is an ongoing inner struggle inside of every human being. Not just attributing somebody's value, their identity, and their worth based on what they do. I'll give you an example. Uh, About two years ago, uh, I was coaching my son's basketball team. My son Malachi, he's eight. Uh, and he was playing for the Elmwood Park Knicks. His first year of playing basketball. And we started off the season uh, really well. We were 4-0. and Won our first four games. Wasn't even close. And on top of that, as a father, I was like watching my son play. And I was like, all right, he's doing pretty good too, right? So I was like feeling good about how things were going this season. And, uh, and the showdown came. I don't know if you caught it on SportsCenter or not. But... <laughs> The Elmwood Park Knicks were playing the Elmwood Park Bulls. The Bulls were the only other undefeated team. I swear Michael Jordan's son was on the team or something like that. No, he wasn't. But but the game came, and I, like, remember, like, getting just geared up for it. Um, I'm, like, being 100% honest, I was kind of nervous for the game because we knew that, like, hey, these guys are really good, and and we're going to see where our guys are at, you know, and stuff like that. Tip comes, and, and we just get blown out. The bulls just stampede over us, all right? I don't even know what a Nick is, all right? But, but, but we just, we didn't even stand a chance, all right? And, uh, and we just get crushed. And so, uh, so we're driving home in the minivan, park the car. The girls are in the car as well, and, uh, and I have this moment of where I say to Malachi, um, like, son, stay in the car for a second. The girls go inside. And, uh, and I began with this statement of just like, so how did you think the game went? And Malachi was like, dad, are we going to eat lunch? <laughs> I was like, no, we're going to talk about this. And... And I started, uh, I started to ask some kind of open-ended questions, but then I started to get at like how I was feeling. And how I was feeling was, I was like, man, um, you could have played better than what you did today. 
uh, Malachi, I wish you would have uh, been a little bit more aggressive and all these sorts of things. And I started to just rehash every single minute of a 20-minute Saturday afternoon game. And, and I saw this demeanor from my son of where he looked at me a little bit different. Like, huh. And, and I'll be honest, this, like, this hit me hard because I was just like, I want my kid to do well. Like, I want him, you know, if he's going to, you know, if he's going to do this, I want him to know that, like, this is going to be hard work and, and all this sorts of stuff. And what, what I was convicted by was this became a matter of a performance, a matter of if you don't perform, my son, how he was receiving that was maybe his father doesn't love him as much. And... And when this happens, because it happens in our world, we have to fight against these things because it is not a reflection of God's love for us. I remember uh, probably like an hour later, just having this terrible feeling inside of my stomach. And it was probably the spirit just constantly punching me in the stomach. Being like, what are you doing? And instead, I had to go to my son and, and confess, Malachi, I want you to know that I love you more than how you perform. Of course I want him to be better. Of course I want to teach him instructions and rules. But the second that that dives into identity and love for my son, it is all wrong. Because it's not based on performance anymore. That his identity should be found in the fact that he is just my son. That I that I love him regardless of how he performs on a basketball court. And truthfully, I see inside of our culture, in our world, all the time, people struggling with shame and guilt and thinking that their identity is tied to the good things that they've done or the horrible things that they've done. But shame and guilt... According to God's love for us, he desires to create distance from our identity and that shame and guilt. And he says that you are loved above and beyond what you do and don't do. For the people of God, that was seen every year with a scapegoat. For us today, that is seen by Jesus, by his presence, by being the scapegoat for us, by taking on flesh, by coming into this world, by us placing our shame, our guilt, the things that we are afraid of, the things that we latch onto for our identity and say, if people really knew who I was, they wouldn't really love me. We put that on Jesus. And Jesus takes that to the cross. 
He takes that to the tomb. And I love these words here in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, this is so beautiful, purify our conscience from dead works. See, the gift of Jesus as being the scapegoat is that it purifies our conscience. It gives us a new understanding from these dead works of old to a greater, a better, a new understanding of the living God. My hope and prayer would be that this place, this church, would be a place where people can bring their shame and their guilt and, and can be told that it will be cast away. That you're not defined by your greatest mistake nor your greatest victory. That is put on Jesus. That by the empty tomb, he gives us a new identity and that we latch on to that identity. I mean, imagine what the church would be if it was understood to be a place that would talk about the God who takes our shame and guilt away. It would be a place that has people who have been hurt would be made whole again. It would be a place that does not look at people only by what they can do, but would, be, uh, would have value because they're created by God. It would be a place that invites people to bring who they are and are reminded of who God is every single week. It would be a place that does not hold people to a standard of the world, which is you have to perform to receive my love, but would be held by a standard of God that you are loved, therefore you get to go and do. And it would be a place that welcomes the broken, the guilty, the shameful, and says you are who God says you are, forgiven and freed by his death and resurrection. If you want to be a part of that place, please just say amen. It's who we are as God's people. That's what it means to be the church. And today, on Palm Sunday, a day that kicks off the most important Week in history, a day that is filled with Jesus serving and loving and caring. A day when the people would cheer him when he came in and then days later would boo him and spit on him. This week is another reminder of our God and his steadfast love for us, a day, a week, where we are told that Jesus is the provider, the one who has come, that Jesus is our protector, 
the one who shields us because of his death and resurrection. And yes, he is our scapegoat, the one who takes our sin, our shame, and our guilt, and as those kids beautifully read, takes it as far as the east is from the west. It's in this week that we're reminded of all that God has done and the new identity that he gives us. As the scriptures would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that you are a new creation. You are new because of what God has done for you. So to the remember the duck story, remember that thing back in the day? The story continues that the grandma continually saw her grandson doing all of these weird, random jobs that her granddaughter should have been doing. And finally, she comes to her grandson and says, why are you cleaning your sister's room? And the grandson gets to this place of where he says, grandma, I'm really sorry. I accidentally killed your favorite pet duck. And the grandma's response is simply, but you know that I love you more than I love that pet duck. I, when I hear that story, I, I, I see the love that God has for us. Here's the thing. With shame and guilt and brokenness in this world, when we confess our sin, there will be consequences to those very things. It's not that they disappear. There are consequences to the things that we do I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is that if you think that your relationship with God is one, that, that I've got to do more good than bad, you've got it all wrong. The reason God loves you is because of who you are. Because he created you. And as a result of that, as Hebrews says, this purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It pushes us to go and serve him. So my hope and charge for us, especially as we kick off Holy Week, is that we would live as free and forgiven people, knowing that you are sons and daughters of the king. And that we would be so bold to admit our shame, to admit our guilt, to place it on Jesus. And I don't know how heavy of a statement that is for you today, but I do know that this is a place where we desire for you to be freed from that shame and to be freed from that guilt because you are loved beyond your greatest mistake or your greatest achievement. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that you came and died. And I pray that as challenging as that is to comprehend, in the midst of a world that holds people to this performance mentality, I pray, God, that we would see that you are one who desires to work in us to not be identified by anything else except your love for us. May we be so bold to believe that, to live in that, and in the messiness of what that means, God, may this be a place that that is seen and expressed and celebrated. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.